Um, well, do me a favor, grab a Bible. We've got some in baskets on the floor. You may be tripped on it, trying to find your way to a seat. We've got baskets down by your feet, and, and in them you should be able to track down a Bible. And get with me to Mark chapter 8. That would be on page 820. 820. And while you're getting there, let me just set this thing up. So one of the things, my name's Corey Williams. I'm the campus pastor here, and I have the joy and the privilege of doing this week by week with you guys. And it is a lot of fun. <laughs> Thank you, Carol. Thank you. Um, yeah, it's fun. I love this. I love getting to hang with you guys. I love, I love you guys. I, I was thinking about it this morning as I was talking to some people that I don't know very well, and, and I was just thinking, man, this is awesome. The people that we get to spend time together week by week, it's just fun. And uh, thank, I just want to say thank you to you guys for being a part of this. Um, but one of the things that I'm passionate about is um, doing ministry in a way that is gospel-centered, meaning I, I think that the Bible and what God is up to in the world is this incredible thing called the good news of the gospel. And I think that the way that we do ministry should be organized around that reality, that, that everything that we do should actually point to that truth and help us to better understand there's a, there's a reality that God sent his son. There's good news for us here. And, and our ministry then should, should kind of be oriented around that reality. And so that's been a theme, um, hopefully here at the McChesney Park campus and in the student ministry that I led for a number of years. But I, I just love that idea. And this morning, we're going to jump into a passage that is gospel-oriented. It's gospel-centered. And what we're going to find is that the gospel, the good news of what God is doing for us, is actually shaped like a cross. Um, we need to understand that the gospel involves the willingness of Christ to lay down his life. So let me pray, and then we're going to get to work. Lord, right now we ask that you would speak to us through your word. And we pray, God, that by your spirit you would take you know, these words on pages in front of us, and you would help those to come alive. And what we want is not to hear opinions of a person in the front with a microphone. What we want is to hear your voice loud and clear. And so I pray, God, that you would use this time to speak to each one of us and to help us know your son. We pray in his name. Amen. Amen. All right. So a part of the gospel is being able to confess who Jesus is, to be able to say, here's who I understand him to be, and, and I believe him to be, and I will use my lips to articulate that. I, I believe him to be, and you fill that thing in. That's a confession, and we find that on the front end of our story here as Jesus is asking questions to help his followers be able to confess who he is and what he's done. So verse 27 reads like this, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? So he's helping people to wrestle with that reality. Who is this incredible man? And he says, who do, you know, kind of popular level on the street. If you go around and you ask, who is this person? What, what would they say? And the response is interesting. Look at verse 28. They replied, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah. And still others, one of the prophets. So he's kind of getting, reading the temperature. Okay, what do people think about me? And he's, he's not like insecure like me. You know, like I'll get done with a message and I'll like fish around. Hey, what'd you guys think about that? And I just want to get patted on my back. He's not insecure saying, you know, who do people think that, that I am? He's helping them to identify him properly. So who do people say that I am? They say, well, some have said, you're like John the Baptist, this other guy who, who was there, you know, just previously. And he was a, a leader, a religious leader who was doing a teaching and he was helping people to kind of repent from what they were up to and he was baptizing them. 
and his message was, was ethical. He was helping people learn how to live. And it challenged, this is kind of crazy, but it challenged the politics of the day. And it did so in a way that actually ended up getting him imprisoned and then beheaded. And so some of the people are saying, well, maybe you're John the Baptist back from the dead with this continuation of a message that's going to, that's going to confront our society and help us to remember who we are as the people of God. Some say you're like Elijah. Elijah was this Old Testament prophet who again was confronting the society of the day and he was challenging the powers that be and he was calling the people of God back to faithfulness, but he was doing it in a way that was very confrontational. And so they're thinking, you know, here's what everyone's saying. You're kind of like this religious leader who's helping us to remember who we're supposed to be, but it is challenging the politics of the day. And, and um, you know, the truth is that's how some people still today interpret Jesus. They look at him as this individual who is a fascinating dude, obviously has an influence on society, uh, has an incredible message. I think if you were to ask a lot of people, who do you think that Jesus of Nazareth is? They would say he's a religious leader who had this phenomenal teaching of love. If you look at him, he's the guy who taught us not to judge. He taught us to love our neighbor like ourselves. He was constantly reaching out to and caring for people who the rest of society would kind of shrink back from. And, and he taught us the golden rule to love people like we want to be loved. He's a teacher of love. Most people could affirm that. But that's, that, that's only a portion of who he is. And so he asks the next question. Okay, I don't just care about what everyone else thinks. Who do you say that I am? Look with me at verse 29. But what about you? He asked. Who do you say that I am? Now, friends, this is the most important question in the world. When you walk away from the church service this morning, this question and how you address it is the most important question in the world. Who is Jesus to you? He's looking at his disciples and he's saying, who do you say that I am? And he's looking at us again this morning and he wants us to kind of wrestle through that. And some of us, we don't create the bandwidth in our life to deal with these heavy hitting questions. But Jesus is saying, look, let's just kind of push everything aside for a moment. Who do you say that I am? Am I just some religious guy with an interesting teaching, helping people love one another? Or am I something more? How, how you answer that question this morning has tremendous significance on your life today and your eternity. Who do you say that I am? Well, look how they respond. Verse 29, Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Peter recognizes that Jesus is more than a teacher. He begins to call him this very freighted word, Messiah. You're a savior. And, and for them, that word, it, it had all kinds of things that were built into it. For, for them and their culture to call somebody Messiah meant everything that I've read in my Bible is pointing to you, that you are the king, that you have authority and power, and God has given us promises that when the Messiah shows up, he will reign forever. He will establish his kingdom, and he will defeat the enemies of the people of God, and he will give us the provision of God and give us peace, and he will establish us in the land. So we believe you're the Messiah. And Peter gets it right. That's an incredible thing to do, to look at this individual and say, you're the Savior. You're the King. You're the Messiah. And he gets it right. In fact, not in our story, but another dude named Matthew wrote about this story as well. And in his account, 
Jesus says to Peter, when he hears him say, you're the Messiah, he says, that was not given to you except by God. God gave you that answer. That's not something you came up with on your own. And he was commending him. He's saying, that's right. You have nailed it. He, Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Messiah. But look what happens next. And this is where it gets really weird. Verse 30, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Okay, you just identified the most important person in all of history. And Jesus says, you got it right, but don't tell anybody yet. So my question this week was, what on earth is he doing? Why doesn't he want to get the team together, devise a strategy, put a communication strategy in place, and just tell everyone? He should release a book. He should get a podcast. He should do all these different things and just kind of get this thing going because if he's the Messiah, everyone needs to know about it. So why does he say, okay, you got that right, but I don't want you talking about it. I don't want you telling other people about this yet. What on earth is going on here? Well, as we continue to read, the answer becomes clear. And here's what it is. The Messiah has a mission. And until that mission is completed, people would look at him as the king and the savior, but they wouldn't understand what he's actually come to do. Here's what, here's what I'm talking about. You can't have a Messiah without a cross. He doesn't want people telling everyone the king has come until they realize that that king has come to die. So he says, postpone any announcements of this thing. I've got a mission and I am on my way there. So the reason why he tells them not to tell anyone is because of that issue of timing. He's marching toward Jerusalem, toward Calvary, toward a cross where he's going to lay his life down. So here's the first thing that we need to do then. We need to be able to confess that Jesus is the Messiah. We see that here in this story. We should be able to say he is our savior. And then we should fill that in by saying he's a savior who had a mission. Look with me at this mission, verses 31 and 32. He began, he then began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this. He begins teaching his followers Here's what's going to happen. We're moving toward Calvary. I'm going there and I must, this is my calling. This is what God has sent me for the purpose of. I'm going there and I will be rejected and I will be handed over and I will be killed, but I will rise again. And he's explaining very clearly. It tells us, he says it plainly to them. He's telling them, this is the reason why he's here. This is his mission. And he's teaching them these things, but it is going right over their heads. I realize that um, in ordinary conversations, I can be ditzy. So I'll be talking to somebody, which I'm not good at. I'm an introvert, and I just kind of shrink away from, you know, small talk or whatever. But I'll be talking to someone, and they'll kind of drop some little nuanced, like subtle things right over my head. I am just ditzy. It just, and then later on, I'll be sitting there replaying that conversation in my head, and I'll go, oh, I understand now what they were doing. That was witty after the fact. That's exactly what happens with the disciples. They're hearing Jesus say, here's what's happening. Here's where I'm headed. Here's what this is going to look like. I'm going to be handed over, crucified, but I'm going to rise again. And it's just whoosh, right over their heads. They have no idea what he's talking about until after the fact. And they start looking back on it and going, you know what, guys, he taught us this. He, he began to clearly explain this thing to us. And we just didn't have a category for it. We had no idea what he was talking about. We thought it was nonsense. 
But he's making it clear this is his mission. And his mission is to go to Jerusalem and to be sacrificed as a substitute. The reason why Christ has come, the reason why he can be called Messiah, is because he dies in the place of people like me who don't deserve it. He takes in his body the punishment and the the penalty for sin, and he dies in my place. But he came back from the dead, and he calls us to believe in that. So the Messiah has a mission, and the mission then, we need to make that very clear as a church. So we're telling and teaching people that this is the plan. This is what God orchestrated. This is how he displays his love. He sent his son to die for sinners like you and I. He is the sacrifice that brings us back into a right relationship with God. That's the way of salvation. That's the work of the Messiah. And he spoke plainly about this, but look what happens next. Verse 32, Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter, hearing Jesus say, here's what's going to happen. He goes, hold on guys. And he kind of grabs him and he says, okay, I need to have a a little one-on-one with you. He says, you've got this all wrong. Peter has read his Bible. He knows the promises of God. He knows about the Messiah and what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to be a king, and he's going to free the people of God from all of the oppression that they've experienced. He's saying, look, I've read my Bible. This isn't how it plays out. So I'd like for you to just cut this out, dude, because this doesn't make sense to us. He doesn't get it. And, And many people, the whole concept of trusting in a crucified Messiah right over our heads because what we want is a powerful king who comes in and swoops in and just makes everything right. And we have a hard time embracing a king who was humiliated, who was spit on, whose beard was plucked out. But Jesus, hearing how Peter rebukes him, look how how he responds in in verse um, 33. When Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. So he's kind of pulled aside, but he's about to make a point. He's going, this is for everyone. He rebukes Peter saying, get behind me, Satan. That's crazy, right? You go from, I just confessed him as Messiah and I'm being applauded for that. Few seconds later, you are being satanic right now. The message that you have, that's a pretty big swing, right? To confess Christ as Lord and a moment later to be called Satan. He's saying, you do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Here's here's what's going on. You cannot have that Messiah without the crucifix. You you can't fast track this thing and think, look, all we need is for the king to show up and just make everything better and improve everything. He's saying, no, look, the reason why I've come is to go to a cross and die. And so to suggest that that's the wrong strategy is demonic. To think that you could have Christianity without a crucifix doesn't make sense to Christ. He calls that satanic. Now here's the problem. I don't think Peter is alone in this estimation. I don't think Peter is the only dude ever to look at what God is up to and to interpret it as, we want to experience the goodness of God and his power. We do not like the cross. That's offensive. That's hard. That's difficult. Let's put that on mute. In fact, I think a lot of people do that. I was thinking about it this week, and I was, I was just wondering about a lot of the popular level content Uh, of Christianity. And I'm not a watchdog person. I'm not sitting around policing other people's ministry and thinking about their content or anything like that. I'm so glad that's not my calling. But, But here's one of the things that I'm aware of. When I do hear some of the very popular level teaching, it feels to me and sounds to me like Christianity without a cross. That's not good. 
That's not good. In fact, uh, there's a sociologist named Christian Smith. Back in 06, he published his work. He went around and he interviewed the youth in the United States that called themselves believers. And, and he and his research partner came away with the conclusion, this is a mouthful, but, but this is what he called it, so you know, take issue with him. He said, here's how a lot of people view God nowadays. This is 06, a lot of the teens during that time. He said, it's this thing that we call moralistic therapeutic deism. Most people walk around, I know that's a mouthful, thinking I just have to be a good person and I just have to affirm myself that God loves me and, and he, he's got a great and wonderful plan for me and you know he exists and that's all fine. There's no cross in that. That was the conclusion that Christian Smith came away with. A lot of people's understanding of Christianity is deformed because it doesn't help them deal with the big issue of sin. The problem with that message is it doesn't address the problem. So we can walk around going, I just got to get to church and get my life a little bit better, or I just need to do some good things. God is saying what you need is a savior who died in your place. You need a substitute. So we as a church, we want to be careful and make sure that this is a feature of our ministry, that we talk about the cross, that we talk about the crucifixion, that we talk about our Lord dying in our place. All right, let's look now at the outcome of this way of life. He calls us now to a cross-shaped life. So if he's the Messiah and his mission was to go and die in our place and rise again, what are we to do as his followers? Well, look, he says, if you're going to follow me, you do the same thing. Verse 34, then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. If you want to keep in step with the Lord himself, he's saying, here's what you do. You take up a cross. Now, in our society nowadays, we use that phrase very flippantly. I think many of us have probably been to church a lot of times. We've heard about denying ourselves and taking up our cross. It's become a popular phrase where we say, if something's hard, we go, that's my cross to bear. That coworker, good grief, that's my cross to bear. Or that person that I'm, you know, related to, uh, they're, they're my cross to bear. That is such a flippant way to, to talk about the cross. When Jesus said it, they didn't have that phrase back then. The cross was an instrument of exec execution. So when he said it, it would have jarred them. If you want to follow me, you take up your cross voluntarily grab this instrument of execution and follow me. Okay, this is heavy hitting stuff. He's saying if you really want to be in step with him, it looks like you taking up an instrument on which you're going to die. And he explains that. Look with me at verses 35 through 37. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? He's saying, look, if you want to be my follower, you're going to die, but you will actually obtain resurrected life. If you're going to be my follower, you have to come to a point where you surrender and you lay down your rights. You have to be willing to say, I'm going to put myself in the tomb and trust that the power of God will raise me up to a new way of life that's far superior than anything that I could ever do on my own. And the exchange there is worth it. Because what could you possibly pursue in this life that would be worth forfeiting your eternal reality with God? 
There's nothing. So I was trying to think through how to help make sense of this, and I went to Lowe's this morning, and I found this little flower bulb thing. I'm not a gardener, so I have no idea how this works, but here's how I understand it. You buy one of these things, you put it in the dirt, cover it up, and you water it, and hopefully a flower springs up. Now, here's what a lot of us do. This is our life, and we go, that guy's kind of cute. Look at his little mohawk thingy. And we draw a little face on there, and we go, actually, when I was grabbing them, I'm like, these smell really good. These smell awesome. And so I'm, you know, this smells good. It's cute. Most of us, this is our life, and we go, we want to manage this thing. So let's try to get this into the best school, and let's try to get this thing the best vocation it can possibly get. Let's get this thing a lot of resources. Let's try to make this thing kind and, and generous with people. Let's try to just improve this thing. But look, no matter what we do with a flower bulb, it's never going to become what God intends for it until it gets put in the ground. That's our life. You might think that making your life better is simply a matter of trying a little bit harder, putting yourself in the right situation, making a little bit more money, having a little, little bit more power and status. But God is saying, if you want to experience the potential that I have for you, surrender. Lay down your life, put it in the ground, and watch the beauty that I can bring forth. You're never going to make that thing in your own efforts look like a beautiful flower. Try as you might. But if you are willing to surrender and trust what God is able to do, he will raise up this new and beautiful reality. That's for all of us, friends. If you want to get right with God, it's not a matter of trying to come to church more or trying to start up with spiritual disciplines like Bible reading and prayer. It's not a matter of doing a lot of religious activity. It's a matter of surrender. We have to get to a point where we say, if I'm the captain and the commander of my life, I'm never going to experience the potential God wants for me. But if I'm willing to lay down my life and take up his cross, he can do something spectacular. He can raise me up and beautify me and make me better than I could ever do on my own. He has a good plan, but that plan is for me to trust in the cross work of Jesus Christ and take up my own cross, denying myself and believing in what he's done for me. And that, my friends, is the very best deal that's out there. Who is Jesus? He is the Messiah. What has he come to do? To die in our place, to offer himself as a substitute for people like me who can't get it right on my own, try as I might. He says, I will exchange my perfect life for your failings, and I will pay the penalty for those sins on the cross. Now, the truth is, the message of the gospel is jarring, and it's also offensive. To think that we have to surrender takes a lot of humility, or humiliation, however you want to look at it. But most people are so proud that they don't like the deal. Most of us walk around and go, God, I would rather do something to prove my value and my worth. But this whole concept of a crucified Messiah, I don't know if I can get on board with it. So he gives us one final verse here, verse 38. If anyone is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory with his holy angels. In a moment like this, we can be talking ourselves down. 
I don't need to surrender. I've gone to church for years. I don't, I don't really need to surrender and lay down my life. I'm just a good person. I'm just doing good stuff. I don't really need to do this. And we talk ourselves down because we're ashamed of what it would look like to actually humble ourselves and trust what God has done for us. And Jesus is saying, don't let that be the case. There is nothing better for you, nothing more rewarding for you than to go through this process of surrendering your life to the one who designed you and made you and knows how to beautify you knows how to make you into that flower that he intends for you to become. So let's confess Jesus as Lord and Savior. Let's call him our Messiah. Let's recognize that his ministry was to go to a cross to die for me and for you. And let's be people who by faith surrender our lives to him, believing that by his power and by his spirit, he can do incredible things in and through us. Let me pray. Lord, for anyone in here this morning who maybe has never crossed that line of faith, maybe they've never surrendered, and, and they're feeling pulled and prompted in this moment by your Spirit, God, would you please grant them courage? And would you, even in a moment like this with our eyes closed as we're praying, would you just give them a glimpse of your love for them? That if they would surrender in a moment like this, that you would embrace them and wash over them and help them to know the beauty of your gospel. But God, we know that surrendering is hard and we're prideful people. So would you soften our hearts in a moment like this? And for all of us in here, Lord, whether we have never done this before or we've done it tons of times, help us again in this moment to believe in the Messiah who died for us. We pray in his name. Amen.